Planet in our weekly uh, Torah portion teaching. This week, Parshas is uh, Parshas Pechaz, and um, we're going to be getting into something uh, that is premised within that of the Parshas for this week, and it's a premise that we actually end up finding within that of Brit Shah. And uh, most notably, uh, a discussion that I had with some anti-missionaries when I went to the Lapid Jewish Conference down in um, down in Spartanburg, and all that stuff. They had uh, you know Jews for Judaism and Chabad there, and all this other stuff. And um, we're going to get into that. But let me just uh, let's go ahead and get started in prayer. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, Master of the Universe, who has sanctified us in the words of your Torah. I ask you, Father, that you help us here today as we go through your word, Father, as you help us to um, to learn to be uh, better servants to you, Father, to uh, to understand our place in the world in many ways, Father, and to help us to uh, grow with, with you, Father, and grow within that of your word, that we are able to go and transform da'at into chokmah, within that of our life, and um, I ask that you be with each and every single person who is watching this here today as they go throughout their week and as they enter into this week's Shabbos, okay? Uh, Hashem Yeshua Mashiach, um, Amen. All right. Well, this week's Torah portion is Penchas, and uh, most of your translations and all that stuff that deal with Parshiot uh, go and say, well, Penchas means Phineas, you know, kind of like Phineas and Ferb. <laughs> and that's, you know, uh, one of the equivalents of the name Penchas. But also there's a, there's more meaning to this as well. First of all, we see that Penchas was uh, not supposed to be the Kohen Haggadol. Wasn't something that it was that uh, he was in the line for in many ways. And the reason is because of the fact that his father, Eleazar, ended up going and marrying the uh, a Gentile woman. And the, he was named Penchas because of the fact of her DNA being a part of Penchas, uh, which Penchas actually means dark skin or Negro. It, uh, it, it, it means these things. And so there was great issue with Penchas considering that his mother was that of a Gentile from Egypt that, you know, that basically, you know, he looked different. He had a, he had, uh, he wasn't really in the line, even though Eliezer was the Chohen Haggadol at the time. Uh, the thing is that Penchas wasn't in the line to be this because of the fact that the father ended up stepping outside of that, of the tribal lineage. Now, the thing with this is that this could get us onto a discussion, and it's not a discussion that's a part of what it is that we're going to be talking about here today, but we will mention it just briefly. Uh, one of the things that was very popular for quite some time and is starting to finally, finally starting to die out now is the what is known as the Ephraimite identity or two-house movement. And the Ephraimite identity slash two-house movement is also usually tied with one Torah the theology and all of these things. And luckily, that's starting to uh, really die out now. Uh, the entire idea came about from several different places. First of all, a unilateral ecclesiology uh, 
that we end up finding uh, through that of the Pentecostal Church. Many of the people who are a part of the Hebrew Roots Movement have come out of the Pentecostal Church, and so they carry with them many things that are, you know, identifiable to them. You know, we've discussed in the past how it is that people go and say horrible things about Yeshua by trying to say that Yeshua is the Passover lamb. We've done several teachings on this. But also, you know, with that comes this idea of Ephraimite identity to house theology, which is essentially a replacement theology, but it's rebranded in a different way. You know, it, it's it's basically exactly like, like this, but it has another element that is much more dangerous than... Um, than replacement theology because it carries with it a racial component. You know, you've heard individuals, you know, ask the question, you know, within that movement, where is it is that you think the 10 tribes ended up going to, you know, and then, you know, they all have the pet theories. Oh, they're all in Africa, so they're all black. Oh, they're all in Europe, so they're all, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, and all those things. Or, oh, they're the Native Americans. Or, oh, they are, you know, uh, Asians, you know, and all this stuff, you know. And these individuals go and very much, in many ways, go and dismiss the entire Bible and what it says about the Lost Tribes because it says that they went out, you know, to all four corners of the earth and the idiomatic expression of four corners of the earth, okay? Uh, some people are going to say, what, you know, is Christopher a flat earth? No, no, not at all. That, that's an idiomatic expression that these individuals know nothing about, sadly. But, uh, but yeah, you know, this is what it is that the Bible says in terms of this, and this is why it is that you have, you know, uh, Jews in Russia, you have Jews in China, you have Jews in Australia, America, you know, Europe, everywhere, you know, all four corners of the earth do we have Jewish individuals. But then you have, you know, the two house individuals, and this is why it is that I do not associate with the Hebrew Roots Movement or the two house group, is that you have people that are being, um, that are big names within there, saying, well, because of the fact that I'm, you know, from Spain, you know, or from Costa Rica, I am, you know, a Cohen and all these things, which is just utterly ridiculous. And then you have uh, the guy in, um, where, where is he, Great Britain or somewhere? I think his name is Nat, Math, Matthew Nolan, who says that Hitler was actually a really good guy. And the issue was those Ashkenazi Jews, you know. And, and these are people that are big names within that of the Ephraimite identity, two-house, Hebrew roots movement, you know. And so the thing about it, though, is that people give me a hard time because I am rather hard on the Hebrew Roots Movement, and rightfully so, because of the fact that when you start, you know, allowing people like this to be your quote-unquote leaders of a particular movement, there's some huge issue, because all of these things have, you know, racial components to them and all that stuff. This is the exact same thing that Adolf Hitler taught, as a matter of fact. So then you have the groups like the black Hebrew Israelites who try and claim that all the Jews are black. You have, you know, the 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 Aryan theology individuals that you know believe that is uh, blonde hair blue eyed and then you have you know all the others that we mentioned before and the thing about though is that we see that there was you know that basically it's like you know it doesn't have anything to do with your walk it has nothing to do with your faith it has nothing to do with your connection with Hashem in fact your connection with Hashem based upon these people deals with the fact of what color your skin is and and, and if you ask me that's just you know uh, the definition of racism 
just the very definition of it. So, you know, so what we have here, again, going back to what it was we were talking about, we have Pincus, who wasn't supposed to be the Kohen Haggadol. And we see that Hashem goes and uh, has a covenant with Pincus and goes and says that his, um, that his uh, a pre-ship will be, you know, through uh, quite a long time, as a matter of fact. Says, that, you know, that basically everything would be based upon and built up from that of Pincus. So, the thing is that you heard me mention at the beginning uh, that I said that I was going to discuss um, how it is that this played into when it was that I went to the Lapid Jewish Conference in Spartanburg and uh, got to be the keynote speaker over there. When we when I was going over there, what was happening was there was all of these individuals from Jews uh, uh, from Jews for Judaism, as well as a Chabad and all these things, and they brought out all their guys to go and you know uh, say all these things and try to keep Jews from going. In there, you know, and their major role, they say, is to keep Jews Jewish. And, you know, I whole, wholeheartedly agree with that, uh, which they found uh, to be uh, rather interesting. <coughs> but my buddy Jeremiah and I, the thing that was funny about it is that we see all of these, you know, other people going in. They're not stopping and talking to these people because they know who the anti-missionaries are. And I decided, you know... That I'm, you know, Jeremiah and I, whenever we see this go on, because we've seen this before, back when the synagogue was open, we would end up going and having these people, these people would go and try and uh, protest, you know, people going into the synagogue and all this stuff all the time. And as a matter of fact, I remember one particular instance, we were having uh, our Pesach Seder, and it was the day that the entire Jewish community was having the Seder. And we were going and having our Seder, and they were out there, Jews for Judaism, with their picket signs and Chabad and all that stuff. And <laughs> it's really, it was really interesting because I was sitting out there going and saying, okay, it's Pesach, and you're out here doing this? And yet these people are going in here to do the Seder and, you know, are, uh, you know, fulfilling the mitzvahs? You know, who's the real Jews here? I mean, seriously, you know, so it, it's, it, it's a very interesting thing. But at the conference, it was interesting because of the fact that some of the other Lapid Jewish teachers saw me and Jeremiah going over there and talking with these individuals. And they said, well, you guys are rather brave to go over there and do that. And I'm sitting over there going, man, I, you know, it's really bad that, you know, people have to say that about us going and talking with these individuals and debating with them and having the discussion with them on these whole things because of the fact that, you know, we should be engaging in this stuff, you know, and to just say, oh, you know, we're just going to discount them and all that stuff. You know, I think that that does a lot of harm, you know, in terms of, you know, our moving forward in our walk and all that stuff. And I really think that a person who doesn't engage in that sort of debate and their defense of Yeshua the Messiah um, are individuals who really can't defend it in many ways. And so, you know, me and Jeremiah, we're both on the other end of the spectrum here. And there was almost a crowd that gathered around when they saw Jeremiah and, and I sitting over there debating and engaging with these individuals. And so the thing about it, though, is, I, is as I said, first of all, we got to go and discuss something that it is that we all agree with. 
And what is that? Well, the first of all, that the perpetual uh, throne of da- that the that the throne of David will always be with the house of David. Okay, and this is brought up within that of the uh, of the book of Psalms, chapter eighty nine, verse four through five, and this is where it is that they cited this. They said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, for all eternity I will establish your seed, and I will build your throne for generation to generation. Selah. Now, the psalm goes on in terms of this, in terms of Psalm 89, uh, verse 27 through 33, and it says, He will call to me, You are my Father, my God, my Rock of my, of my salvation. I too will make a firstborn supreme over the earth's kings. Forever shall I preserve my kindness for him. My covenant shall remain true to him and I shall establish his seed. This is key eternally and his throne like the days of the heavens. If his son shall forsake my Torah and not walk in my judgments, if they should profane my statutes, and not observe my commandments, then I will push their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity to the plagues. Okay, so God is very, you know, he's serious about this. Now, my good buddy, Andrew Gabriel Roth, tries to to, uh, advance this by showing that it is that he believes that Yeshua, of course, is um, of the seed of David HaMelech, you know, of King David. And he does this by trying to show within that the genealogies that both genealogies are dealing with Miriam, okay, within that of Matthew and Luke. Okay, now the issue is here that the problem is that, first of all, it says the seed. Seed does not come from a woman, okay? So that's a huge issue right there. And, you know, given, you know, the virgin birth and all that stuff, you know, being impregnated by Ruach HaKodesh, that causes huge issue with this idea of the seed of David HaMelech. All right. So the thing about though is that we, first of all, have to go and look at this and we have to, you know, we're going to be bringing out passages that people never discuss. And you think that as believers in Mashiach, we need to be discussing these passages far more than the Orthodox do, but we don't. And so, you know, with this, we have to establish this. We have to establish that, first of all, within modern halakha, that tribal lineage or the lineage of Judaism comes from that of the mother. But we all know that that wasn't the halakha during the times of Yeshua. And the thing about it, though, is that I can actually show you how it is, and that's what we're going to do here today, how we tie the old halakha and the new halakha together. How it is that there is no way out of this, that Yeshua is indeed the seed of David HaMelech. All right? Now, where it is that we are going to start here is actually within the book of, of, uh, of uh, Bereshis, the book of Genesis, Chapter 25, verse 19. And it says right here, right, right here, Vi Eli toldot Yitzach ben Avraham, Avraham holid et Yitzach. Now, the thing is that we say, okay, big deal. The English says, 
And these are the descendants of Yitzhak, the son of Avraham. After God gave Avraham, or Avram, the name Avraham, he, and the word that we have right there is cholid. It says, he cholid, meaning fathered, is, is, is what Gutnik renders there. Gutnik renders father. Yitzhak. Okay? Now, why is this word cholid so important? Why is it that, that I picked this word out here within that of the verse? And the word fathered is indeed correct. Okay, I'm not taking issue with that of the Gutnik. But the thing about it, though, is that that would be a direct English translation in many ways to one aspect of what the word cholid actually ends up meaning. Okay? Because the word cholid actually means to rise up, to raise up, to raise a child, to, you know, uh, to, to, to be the influence in that of their life that carries with them. And you say, okay, big deal, big deal. I, I am sure that this word holid is found several different times within that of the Torah, within that of the Ketuvim, within that of the Nevi'im. Oh, for it only appears four times within that of the entire Tanakh in the entire Old Testament. It only appears four times. And we're going to be going over the passages where it is that it, 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 it is. And the thing is that we have countless genealogies. We have a genealogy happening every couple of chapters of, you know, this is the person that was begotten and begotten. It's just such a horrible word for this whole thing. And it's not truly, you know, the accurate thing. That's, that's a very, very small part of what the word holid actually ends up meaning. But, um, we're going to go and look at some of these, some of these verses. Okay. Let us go to the book of Bereshis yet again. Chapter 11, verse 27, and it says again, Vieli Todot. Okay, it seems that many of these start out with Vieli Todot, or these are the offsprings of the generations. Terach, Terach, Holid, et Avram, et Nachor, vi et Haran, vi Haran, Holid, et Lot. Now we have the word Holid again mentioned twice within that of this passage as well. And this is one of the very few times that the word holid is actually used. And in the English, it says 11, uh, or for Genesis 11:27, it says, these are the offspring of Terach, Terach, Holim, Avraham, Nahor, and Haran. Okay. Now, the thing that is interesting is anybody who knows the history of Avram knows that basically his father was the, his greatest influence and the one who raised him up to be what it was he was before he broke the barrier and became the world's first Jew. He started out as Ivrit, as a Hebrew, and then he went on to be a Ger, and then he went on to be the world's first Yehudi. That's why it is that whenever it is we pray, we, we pray, Avraham, Av, uh, uh, Elohai Avraham Avenu, Elohai Yitzhak, vi Elohai Yachov. You know, we always start with Avraham Avinu, which encapsulates the idea of chesed, of loving kindness. 
and he is also considered the first Jew. So therefore, we must start out our walk within that of chesed, of learning to be, you know, to encapsulate chesed, loving kindness, which fulfill the two most important mitzvahs, okay? Now, I don't want to get too off track here. I can, I know that I can get off on rabbit trails at times. And, uh, I was in danger of doing so right there. And I'm not going to, uh, to go for it. But the, but the, those who know the story of Avram know that Avram ended up, uh, going and selling idols within that of his father's store. His father, Tarach, was an idol maker. That's what it was that they, that he did. And then he was sitting over there and he realized by looking up at the sky and seeing all these things, that there had to be a creator of all of these things. You know, he reached, he broke through that barrier. He became Ivrit, okay? He was starting out on his journey at this point by starting to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which he was the first, you know, of course, of the three. And so with that, what happened was his father goes out of town, and then Abraham goes and uh, takes a hammer and goes and smashes all the idols, except for the biggest one. And before then, a bunch of people would come in and he'd say, why is it that it is that you go and, uh, you know, worship something that was created only a couple of days ago, you know, for customers coming in there trying to get them not to buy the idols. And so there, so therefore what happens is he goes and smashes all the idols and places but the only one that's left, which was the biggest one, places the hammer in the hands of the last surviving idol there. And he goes and he says, well, what ended up happening is I was going and, you know, I gave out an offering to the idols. And then what happened was this one got mad and he goes and smashes all the others. And basically, Tarach goes and tells Avram, he says, this thing is made only but of, but of, but of clay. It has no influence to go and to be able to do the things that it is that you say that it did. And Abraham looks at him and he goes, exactly. And so we see that Avram was considered a goy, possibly a nochri. Nochri is one notch below that of goy, of uh, the various levels of, of Gentile. And goy has no relation with that of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Nochri really, really doesn't. You know, they're the ones that would go and have sex on idols and all these things and offer their children to idols and and all these things. You know, this is what the Nokri did. They were the worst of the worst. And it's possible that Abraham was possibly a Nokri. I know most of our things of Tarashi Bialpeh say that it is that he was a Goy, and we see that within that of the Hebrew of the Tanakh, he was a Goy, and that's where he started. Became the first first Jew going through the levels of observance. This is why it is that Paul goes and refers to the people he's writing letters to as B'nai Avraham, that it is that they have to start out, considering that they were Gentiles, they have to start up by going up the ladder and not just, you know, automatically, oh yeah, I'm Jewish now. That's not the way that it works, okay? And so, you know, so we see how it is that that uh, Tarach's influence was on that of his son Avram, okay? Now we have another instance within that of the book of Bamibar, the book of Numbers, chapter 26, verse 29. And it says, B'nai Manasheh le Machir, Mishpachat ha Machri, O Mecher, Holid et Gilad le Gilad, Mishpachat ha Giladi. And so we have, see, the descendants of Manasseh, 
and the Machari family descended from Machar. Machir fathered or um, Holid, Gilad, and uh, Giladi family descended from Gilad, as we see there, okay? And so, you know, we see the influence there as well. Um, let's see here. I did not put the Hebrew script for the next verse, but I, it was another example. And if you want the other example, the other example is within that of Genesis chapter 50, verse 23, where it said, Yosef saw the children of the third generation born to Ephraim, the son of Mecher, Manasseh's son were born, and Yosef raised them on his knee. Okay, I know why it is. I didn't have the Hebrew there. Because we see there that, first of all, in terms of the genealogies that is that is mentioned here, we see that this concept where we get the word Yalad, Yalid, Yalda, you know, that deal with children, which is, you know, very common words for depending upon if it's male or female and all this stuff, where it is that we get those words from, come from the word Holid. Okay, and so we see within here, we have the word, I believe the word is uh, Yalid over here where it has for raised up on his knee. So we see how it is that those connotations go from there considering that first of all, the sons of uh, um, Manasseh were not born from that of Yosef. Okay, so we, we see how it is that this entire idea comes from. Now the thing with this that within that of the Talmud and from that of Hazel, one of the things that Hazel says is that basically any person who goes and teaches a person the Torah, it is like that they are adopted into their genealogy because the genealogy does deal with the finite, but also we see how it is that we see this concept of the nefesh, the neshama, ruach, and the various levels of the soul that are found within that of Hasidus are talked about within that of Brit Hadashah, the New Testament, on how it is that, first of all, that we need to focus in on those things and that those things define us of who it is that we are and what encapsulates us, Okay. Now, the thing is that we can end up seeing this concept as well within that of the book of Numbers, chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Reading from that of the Gutnech Homish, it says, The following were descendants of Aharon ve Moshe. Okay? Now, the reason why it is I ended up putting the Hebrew there is we're not going to be getting into what the Hebrew there, we know what that means, Aaron and Moses. But the Gutnik renders Aaron, who were disciples of Moses, and that is correct, absolutely, and I and, and I like that they said it that way. But however, there's a whole lot more on that. But it goes the verse goes on to say, on the day that God spoke to Moshe at Mount Sinai, where these are the, the name of Aaron's sons. Now it's interesting because it says the descendants of Aaron and Moses. But yet, it only gives the genealogy of Aaron's sons and not that of Moshe Rabbeinu. So this concept, again, of Holid are found 
within this genealogy and how it is that a person is counted within that of the genealogy of another based upon that of the things that were taught to them, who their teacher was, and so on and so forth. For instance, whenever it is that people go and ask me where it is that I got my my uh, my shmeshmeka from, I end up having to say, well, Rabbi, you know, and to protect my rabbi, I just kind of omit his name here because he is a part of Breslev. And then I say, well, his genealogy goes, he his rabbi was so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. So there's a genealogy that I end up having to give through that of my education, my learning, and so people can identify my halakha and my genealogy whenever it is that I may have a Talmud, that it is that I need to, you know, go in and give that to so they can trace back that genealogy in terms of, you know, uh, halakha and things of the sort. You know, so this is important. Now, the thing about it, though, is you say, okay, but this doesn't cover the whole thing in terms of Messiah coming from that of David, as you started out with. Why is it that we're talking about Holid and all of these things? And you, and you put great emphasis on the, on the whole thing of seed. Okay, so, you know, so let's not get too far off track here. Now, this is a story that many people don't really quote that often. And they should because it's very curious as to what's going on here. And it's something that actually relates directly to this concept. And so the thing about it, though, is that, you know, when I was talking with these anti-missionaries and all that stuff, they were, you know, sitting over there going, oh, you know your stuff. You know, you know, you know, these things, you know, most people go and they will go and cite, you know, well, proof that Yeshua is the Messiah is the prophecies and all these things, and those things are important, of course, but however, they have a hard time getting around this whole thing of being of the seed of Dovid HaMelech, okay? And so, you know, here's what, what they ended up, what, what I, where I ended up going with this, and I said, and I said, so tell me about this, uh, about this, uh, this chick by the name of Michal, that is within 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 49. And you saw them start to tense up now. They knew where I was going with this. Okay. And so, th again, this is something that we should be talking about in the believing community. But we don't for some reason. I don't know if people just haven't read it or what the deal is. But this is deep stuff here. But it says in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 49, reading from the Stone Edition Tanakh this time. And it says, the sons of Shaul were Jonathan, Ishvi, Malkishua. And the names of the two daughters, the name of the older one was Marab, and the name of the younger was Michal. Okay? So you say, okay, big deal. Big deal. There were two daughters. Big deal. What does this have to do with anything? Well, we have to read on with the story. In 1 Samuel 18, verses 17 through 19, it says this. Saul said to, to, to David, here is my older da daughter, Merab. I will give her to you as a wife. But you must be a warrior for me and fight the wars of Hashem. Saul said to him, Let my hand not be against him. Let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said, said to Saul, Who am I and what is my life for my father's family in Israel? 
that I should become a son-in-law of a king. But it happened that when a time came, Merab, daughter of, of Saul to David, she was given instead to Adriel. So what we have there is we see that, okay, we see that Michal is given, or Merab rather, is given to Adriel. And there's this whole thing about, uh, uh, you know, Michal going and, you know, uh, dismissing the king and all this stuff and dancing and looking all stupid and all this stuff. Uh, or, or David going and dancing and looking all stupid and all that stuff. Now, one of the things that we end up seeing in chapter 18, verses 20 through 30, is we see that David then goes and marries Michal. Big deal. What does this have to do with anything? Christopher, are you taking us down some sort of, you know, little rabbit trail here that we're never going to get out of? No, this is important. This is very important. So now we're going to go one book later so that we can continue on with the story here. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. David said, Good, I shall seal a covenant with you, but I request one thing from you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you enter to see my face. David sent mess- messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, saying, Due to my wife Michal, whom I married to myself, with 100 Philistine foreskins. So Ishboeth sent and took her away from her husband from Paltiel, son of uh, of Laish, her son, her husband accompanied her, constantly weeping for her until Bahurim. Then Abner told him, "Turn back," and he turned back. Okay, so you see, starting to see some trouble in paradise here. And so ultimately, what ends up happening is, you know, things don't go so well for David and Michal. What does this have to do with anything? I'm still not seeing the connection here. Here's where we're getting to this, okay? But it's important that you know this story. What we end up seeing in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 23, reading from the Stone Edition, edition Tanakh, we see, it says, Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children until the day of her death. Big deal, Christopher. David had other wives. That doesn't say that the genealogy stopped. I'm not saying the genealogy stopped. But I'm saying that you're going to have a huge issue with this concept whenever it is that you get to 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 8. Okay, because here's what it says here. Remember, it says that Michal had no children. None. Zero. Now it says this. It says, So the king took two sons, of, of Rispah, daughter of Ayah, whom she bore, Saul Amor, uh, Armoni, and Mephilboseth, uh, and five sons of Machal, daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, son of Barzarai, uh, the, Mehel, the Meholathite. Okay? Now, here it says that she has five sons. It says right here, wait a minute, but she died without having children. Now it says that she had five sons here. We seem to have a contradiction here, do we not? 
major contradiction. Now, the Stone Edition Tanakh goes and says this within that of the footnote section. It says, actually, Michal did not have so many children. Furthermore, her sister Merab was once married to Adriel, as we see in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 19. The Talmud explains that Merab gave birth to these five children, but they were adopted and raised by Michal, so she was considered her mother. And so we see that these children were counted in the lineage of David HaMelech. Okay, what does this have to do with the genealogy of Yeshua? We're seeing some parallels here in terms of this, but you know, how do we tie this all together? Now, one of the, one of the things I got over here is I got the Dalage Hebrew Gospels, and and I, what happened was I was didn't even know what I was going to be teaching on. Okay, and this is the full New Testament of uh, of Franz Dalage, which is a translation from the Greek. Now, I'm an Aramaic primus, but however, most people, you know, for some reason think that the Greek is the oldest, so I decided to use this to understand the Greek, because I don't know Greek, but I do know Hebrew. So one of the things I did was I decided to, you know, get this so that it is that I can understand the Greek better, you know. Uh, but anyway, I woke up in the middle of the night at 3 o'clock in the morning, Three o'clock, you know, and all that stuff. I had work the next day, for goodness sake, you know. But I wake up at three o'clock in the morning. And I felt, you know, Hashem just bring me out of a dead sleep and say, you need to start reading. You need to start reading. I got something for you that you need to talk about. Something that it is that you need to teach on. I was like, where in the world do I start reading from? You know, you, usually you're going to give me something to do. You know, I'm not one of those people that does the whole thing of opening up the Bible and just going somewhere. Uh, and that works for many people. It really does. But what was happening was this was sitting right by my bed. Okay. It was right on my nightstand. And the thing is that, you know, I, I, I have been meaning to just go and read all the way through the Hebrew and all that stuff of, of Franz Dalage and, um, didn't do it, you know. And for those who don't know Hebrew, but still want to learn a little bit about Dalage's translation, we got the gospels here that have the Hebrew and English together. This one's just the Hebrew. And so the thing is that I go and I open up um, Matthew chapter 1, you know, and all that stuff right there at the beginning, and I just go and I start reading. I'm going through the genealogy here, and it was interesting. I was like, why in the world is this particular word? And you guys can guess what word it is that is all throughout this genealogy that is just rarely used within that of the Hebrew of the Tanakh, you know? And it's the word holid. The word holid is used in, uh, in the... And I, you know, I kind of wonder how it is that First Fruits of Zion rendered the word holid in Matthew chapter 1. As a matter of fact, it uses the word father, the same that they did with um, with uh, uh, the Gutnik Cholmish and all that stuff that Cholmenechem did, you know, with that. Uh, so that's so that's so that's interesting. They're following along with the uh, with the tradition, but usually the word that is translated there is uh, 
begot, you know, and all that stuff. But actually, that's not the concept that is that is really there because we have several other words that could mean that, but that don't have the highest level of of uh, you know the uh, the word that is within within here, which is the word holid, you know. But we see it the word holid used all throughout this over and over again. So it's, it's going and showing us, trying to prepare us for a concept that is unlike any other. That it is that we have to talk about now. One of the things that we have to realize here is that we have to continue on with the narrative past that of just the genealogy. What is it that Joseph goes and does to Miriam? He goes and tells her, you know, that she has to go away. He has to go and hide her, you know, for a while and all that stuff. Why? Because of the fact that if it is found that she is with child, then she will be stoned because the fact that this is something that a lot of people don't understand and don't ever talk about. She was betrothed unto Yosef. Now, does anybody know about the entire commandment of betrothal within that of Judaism? What actually your, your legal status is during that time? Many people don't realize this. The betrothal period is basically where it is that you live together. You operate as a married couple in many ways. But however, at the same time, you don't have sexual relations. Okay? So given Yosef's position within that of the Jewish community, you know, they would know that, you know, first of all, Yosef's not going to go and sleep with her, you know, until it is that the whole thing is, you know, the betrothal period's over with and the actual you know, ceremony is done under the hoopa and all that stuff until all that ends up happening. So basically, you know, she would end up being, you know, said to be a, a, a zona or something like that and, you know, possibly, you know, be stoned to death and all that stuff. So he goes and sends her away. But the legal status of a person who is betrothed within that of Judaism is considered to be married. Okay, so this is key here. This is key. This is where this ties it all together. And after it is that I when I said this to the anti-missionaries, they didn't want to talk about anything else after this because they said, they said, you are actually, you're right. Yeshua of Nazareth is a part of the seed of David HaMelech, you know, of, of King, King David. It can't be refuted. And so the thing is that I wonder why it is that nobody ever talks about this and understands that when a person is betrothed, that it is that they are legally now married to that individual, but yet there are certain, as I guess we could say, benefits or certain things that it is that are not a part of the relationship until, you know, the whole ceremony under the hopa and all that stuff. And the thing about it, though, is that after having this conversation, I was actually really sad. And I'll tell you why it was that I was really sad. I was really sad because of the fact that you heard me mention many times that this story of David and Michal is never mentioned in Messianic circles, Lapid Jewish circles, or that of the Hebrew roots. It's never mentioned. This should be something that we should know better than anybody else. This should be a core part of our understanding of the genealogy of Yeshua. And so, sadly, it is not 
talked about, but now it is that you guys know about it and you guys can go and tell others about it and, you know, teach it and all that good stuff. Um, I think that's all that I have for this week. I know some people wanted to know, I got a couple emails about, I posted a picture from the Gutnik. And you know what? Let me go ahead and just hit that really quickly here. Let me go and close the laptop. Grab the, the Gutnik so I can find where it is. Uh, within the uh, Torah portion this week, we have a uh, textual anomaly. We have a textual anomaly in the word Shalom. And I need to find uh, the verse here. So give me just a moment here. Karach, Chokat, Balach, Balach again. Here we go. Let's see here. And I believe it's actually in a very the very earliest verses here. Yes, here it is. Okay. Yeah, it says right over here. In chapter 25, verse 12, Therefore, say to him, I am hereby given him my covenant of peace. Now, the thing with it is that right here, for the word shalom that is within this verse, the very last word in verse 12, we have the word shalom in the Hebrew. Now, the Masoretic text has a vav, which is broken. Okay? And it actually... <coughs> Some have tried to say, well, basically, it's not a broken vav. What it is instead is that it's a yod. And the yod g goes and has the, uh, the, the, uh, the nakud under, un underneath it. But sadly, the thing about those thing that kills this entire argument is that early forms of the Masoretic text had the nakud on top. Okay. It wasn't until much later in later codified versions, where it is that the Nakud went to the uh, style that we have now, which is the Nakud on the bottom. Now, in the earliest, you know, it was on top, and sometimes it was, you know, just all over the place to just, you know, some gobbledygook. And then they, you know, kind of codified where it is that they put the Nakud and all that stuff in the Nakud that is going to be used, you know, much later. And those early forms, we see the same thing with the broken Vav, so it's not Nakud. But the thing about it, though, is that let's say that it is that it w it is indeed a yod. Let's say somehow there's a textural mistake. People think that scribes make textural mistakes all the time, but in all honesty, go and look at Qumran. You know, over in Qumran, you have all these scrolls that it is that were throwaway scrolls essentially, and these throwaway scrolls were ones that had issues with them. The smallest thing, whenever it is that I had to go and write, you know, um, I had to go and write a scroll of the Torah. I did the Book of Shemot. If I was off by a single millimeter in my writing and all that stuff, just off, you know, within the lines or within the letter or what have you, you know, it's it's almost like being an artist. Then that page was crinkled up and thrown away. It was it was it was garbage. So these kinds of mistakes don't happen with the scribes when people like you know Nehemiah Gordon try and claim, oh yeah, well they accidentally went and put the Nakud. No, dude, that's curing teeth. Every Jew knows what Kirayan Kativ is. They're, you know, it's telling people to go in to read the name Adonai right over there. I mean, this is basic stuff. This is Hebrew 101. You know, but then again, he doesn't realize that his form of the four-letter name of God 
Actually, we would require two Vavs because of the Cholam, but who knows? But anyway, the thing about it, though, is uh, that many people would say that this could also mean Shelim, saying that it has a dual meaning here, that the Vav is broken to symbolize that of a Yod, so that we, re- we, we could also read Shalim. And this also could as well be possible. And I'll say, and I'll say, say this why, because therefore the verse would read, therefore say to him, I am hereby given him my covenant of completeness. Okay. And so with this, we see also a parallel to that of Mashiach as well through this and how it is that we talk about how a person is complete through that of Mashiach that is talked about by that of Rav Shaul and the entire concept of I am Anochi Haderech Haemet Vihachaim. You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, this this entire concept of completeness through Mashiach, you know, is something that is definitely found that we see the parallels from that of Pincus through that of genealogy as well. So it would make sense that this is a possibility that it could also be read as Shalim. As opposed to shalom as well, that there's a dual meaning there. And so therefore, um, I would say that if you are reading this in the shul, read it as shalom, but have shalim in the back of your mind at the same time. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope and I pray that this teaching has been a blessing to you. And I hope and pray that it brings you a greater understanding of the genealogy of Messiah and, uh, and all, and all these things. And I, um, wish each and every single one of you shalom bracha. Peace and a blessing. Shalom. So you want to learn Hebrew or Aramaic or maybe both? Make sure to check out HebrewandArabic.com. All three of the instructors on the website have accredited Moray licenses to teach the languages that they teach on the website. You can take the lessons on your very own time and they even have a Roku channel so you can learn from the comfort of your very own couch. With over 200 videos going step-by-step through the languages and all the various scripts and over 100 PDFs of exercises and quizzes, this is the most thorough set of lessons that you'll find anywhere on the languages of the Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah. So visit HebrewAndAramaic.com today and sign up for only $15 a month.